Hey, good morning, church. How are we? Pretty good so far? Awesome. Hey, my name's Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here at Harvest, so good to be with you all today. If you don't have your uh, Bibles out, go ahead and get those out right now. If you don't have a Bible with you, we've got some people coming down the aisle that would love to get a copy into your hands. All you have to do is raise your hand. If you don't own a Bible, you can go ahead and hold on to that. That is our gift to you. We're going to be in 2 Chronicles today, 2 Chronicles chapter 6. If you go ahead and make your way there, we're going to be continuing our series on prayer called Honest to God, 2 Chronicles chapter 6. Uh, this past week, my wife Carrie and I, um, we were invited over to a couple's house uh, for dinner. And uh, we didn't know this couple very well uh, before heading over to their house for dinner. Uh, it wasn't like one of those situations where we, you know, a couple saw us at Target and they're like, hey, you, should, you guys should come over to dinner at our house. It wasn't like a weird situation like that. We, we had been able to talk and get to know this couple a little bit. Uh, they go to our church. They, are, um, they go to our Grand Haven campus typically. And so a few weeks ago, they invited us over, and you know, finally this past week, we were able to take them up on the offer and head over to their house, and they were just so nice and so encouraging, and from the moment that my wife and I, we stepped into their home to the moment we left, they did everything in their power to make us feel like we were at home. Uh, we walked into their house, and it was, it was spotless. It was immaculate. Uh, they had all these like really beautiful fall decorations and this nice music playing in the background, and the, the smell of the food that was cooking was in the air, and it was just like it felt like a restaurant. It was like so nice. It was like being at home. We walked into the kitchen, and they had like snacks and appetizers for us, and we just, we just sat, and we talked, and we enjoyed one another's company. We shared stories about our lives, and they were so encouraging to us, and the food, the food was so, so good. Have you ever heard of DiGiorno pizza? <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just kidding. I like DiGiorno. I'm all about that, but like, they, they didn't do that. They cooked for us um, Cornish game hens. Have you ever had that before? I'd never had that before. They're like um, little chickens, <laughs> and they're delicious, and I cannot wait until I get another Cornish game hen, but it was, it was fantastic. The food was great. The night was awesome. We felt like we were at home the entire time, and Honestly, though, I wasn't surprised. I wasn't surprised by any of it because isn't that what we typically do when we have people over into our homes? Don't we want to put our best foot forward and we want to create a place where our guests can, can, can make themselves at home and, and can relax? And sometimes it's stressful and it's a lot of work to prepare a place, but we want to do that for them. We want to create a place that's inviting and welcoming, a place where they feel like they're at home. And in this passage that we're going to be studying this morning, in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, this is, this is the heart of the people of Israel. They, they wanted to create, they wanted to make a place where God was at home. And for years and years and years and years, Israel, they were this nomadic people, which, which means they traveled around a lot and set up tents. And, and God's home for a season was this tent. It was called the tabernacle, and it looked like this. This was God's tent. It was a really fancy, fancy tent. It's like glamping. Glamour camping, you know what that is? Makes sense, though it's God's tent. It should be a really nice tent. And this is, this is what they would set up as they traveled, and this is how they sort of made God's home among them. And, but finally now, here in this passage, Israel is in a settled spot. They are in the land that God promised. And, and King Solomon, we talked about him a few weeks ago, he was given enormous amounts of divine wisdom. And Israel had the, the resources and the stability and the people and this unified, peaceful kingdom where they could finally construct a more permanent place for God to call his home. And that's when they built God's temple. And it looks like this. This is God's temple. The first temple of Israel, sometimes called Solomon's temple. Let me tell you a little bit about it. It was built in Jerusalem on this 
mount called Mount Moriah, and it was 90 feet long by 30 feet wide. And as you can tell from the inside of it, it was extremely gold. It's kind of God's thing. Everything was gold. And you would walk in through those first set of doors there, and they were wooden, and they were large, but they were overlaid with gold. And you'd walk into the first room, and that larger room is called the, the holy place. And in it, you would see the golden altar of incense and the golden table of, of, the, uh, of the bread of the presence. And on each side of the room, on the north side and the south side, were five golden lamps on one side and five golden lamps on the other. And as you made your way through this room that was 60 feet long, as you made your way west, you would reach another set of doors that were slightly elevated, also overlaid with gold. And if you were to enter into that place, that was the, the most holy place, the, the holy of holies. And in there you would find the Ark of the Covenant. And surrounding the Ark of the Covenant were two large 15-foot-tall seraphim angels that were also the color gold. Good job. Everything gold. And, and this was the place that Israel built with the instructions, the exact specifications from the Lord. And what we're going to see here in, in, in Second Chronicles is this is where God makes himself at home. And in the chapter right before the one we're going to be looking at today, God does just that. He makes himself at home. And what's happening in Second Chronicles chapter 5 is they're having this big ceremony, this big like worship service, because it's this big festival. It's called the Feast of the Booths. And what they're doing is they're celebrating God and God's presence with them. And he's about to manifest his presence in a way that Israel hasn't seen in a very, very long time. And so the priests, they're carrying up all the stuff from his tabernacle up to his temple because they're about to move into the temple. They're about to dedicate the temple to the Lord. And, and some of the priests, they're carrying the Ark of the Covenant. And they're walking it up to the temple. And while that's happening, in 2 Chronicles 5, it says they're making sacrifices. So many sacrifices that they couldn't keep count of all the sacrifices they were making. It was a lot of blood. And they were singing songs of praises to God. And as the Ark of the Covenant was making its way through the holy place and about to find its resting spot in the most holy place for the first time ever, and the people of God are lifting up a song, we see the Lord manifest his presence in an amazing way in 2 Chronicles chapter 5, verse 13. Let's uh, look there real quick. Let's see what this looked like for the people of Israel in this moment. The writer says that the house, the house of the Lord was filled with the cloud so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled that house. What an incredible sight that must have been for the people of Israel. What an incredible experience for them in that moment to, to, to see and to taste of and to experience the, the presence of God in such a real way. And church, let me tell you right now that the same spirit of God that, that, that dwelt among the people of Israel is the same spirit of God that dwells and moves among us right now. And that's because no longer do we worship in a temple like this, but we are his temple. We are the temple of God. You know, Paul writes to the Corinthians, he writes in chapter 3, he says this, he says, do you not know that you, the church, that you are God's temple and that God's spirit now dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you, 
You are that temple. I don't think God could be any more clear with us that the Spirit of God that once dwelt among Israel in power now dwells among His church in power because we are His temple. And if, and if, that's, if that's the reality that we're living in right now, then like Israel, we should, have the, we should have that desire to make God home. To make God feel at home, to make a place where God can make his home among us, to create and cultivate a place that God would make himself home among us. Are you doing that? Because, because listen, it's not just the responsibility of your, your pastors or your small group leaders or whoever to, to create that place and that environment and that space. It's, if, you're, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, and you call this place, you call Harvest your church home, then it's, then it's your responsibility as well. It's your responsibility to create and cultivate a place where God can make himself at home. You know, Paul goes on later to write in, in chapter 6, he says this, he says, do you not know that your body, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You say, your your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And that's so amazing because in almost every other faith, in almost every other religion, people travel to a temple. But we are his temple. God, would you help us to realize how amazing that is? And we need to live in that reality. We need to take that reality with a certain degree of seriousness and a certain degree of reverence. And here's the thing. I, I don't think any one of us in our own power, in our own strength, even, even together, collectively, in our own power or our own strength, can we truly create and cultivate a place where God would make himself at home? I think we need to be dependent on God, and that's why we need to be a people of prayer. And so our big idea this morning is this. It's that prayer is essential to creating and cultivating a place where God makes himself at home. Prayer is essential to creating and cultivating a place where God makes himself at home. If we want this church, this place, to be a place where God continues to move in power, a place where God continues to, to display his glory and his awesomeness, then we need to be a people of prayer. Because, because a praying people are a dependent people. A praying people are a humble people. A praying people are a people that recognize their need for Jesus Christ. A praying people are a people that are empowered by the Spirit of God to do what only the power of God can do. So the question I want rattling through your mind this morning is just this idea of, is my life a place where God can make himself at home? Or is, or is my life and my decisions and the things that I'm about, am I hostile to the Spirit of God? Let's jump into our passage here in 2 Chronicles 6. We have Solomon, and he's witnessing firsthand the, the power and the manifest glory of God in a way that they hadn't seen in a very, 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 very long time in Israel. And so this is what he does. He, he prays. He prays. Let's look at this prayer now. Let's see what we can learn from it in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verse 12. Let's start at verse 12. 
We read, Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, and he spread out his hands, and Solomon had made a a bronze platform five cubits long and five cubits wide and three cubits high, and he had set it in the court, and he stood on it. And then he knelt on his knees in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, and he spread out his hands toward heaven and said this, he prayed, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart, who have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand. You have fulfilled it this day. Now therefore, O Lord God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him, saying, you shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your sons pay close attention to their way to walk in my law as you have walked before me. Now therefore, O Lord God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant David. But will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. And like Solomon in this prayer, if we want to create and cultivate a place where God makes himself at home, we need to be a people of prayer, we need to pray And the first thing we need to pray for is is we must pray that this place, our, our hearts, our lives, would be a place where God is celebrated. We need to pray that God's home would be a place where God is celebrated. This place that we gather here today, it is not supposed to be just a social club where we connect with other people and make friends. This is not supposed to be a place where we hear a talk that that makes us feel better about ourselves. It's not supposed to be just a place where we sing songs like a concert and express our emotions and then feel better. It's it's not supposed to be a place where it's like a lecture and we just learn more about the Bible and get more head knowledge about who God is and this book that we study. This place, first and foremost, above anything else, needs to be, must be a place where our God, the creator of the universe, is celebrated above anything else and above anyone else. We need to be a people who celebrate God. And we see here in Solomon's prayer, he starts with that. He starts by celebrating who his God is. Here's some reasons why we must celebrate God. The first reason why why we celebrate God is because he is incomparable. Our God, he is incomparable. It's the first thing out of Solomon's lips in his prayer, in verse 14, he cries out, he says, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth. And Solomon declares that our God is to be worshipped, our God is to be celebrated because he is incomparable. What does it mean that our God is incomparable? It means that there is no one or no thing like our God. There is nothing in the heavens, there is nothing on earth that is even remotely close to what or who God is. He is completely other. He is completely unlike anything you have tasted or seen or experienced. We can't reason our way to God. We can't use our intellect to understand who God is because if we try to do that by our own reasoning, by our own power, we will instead create in our hearts and create in our minds an idol and not the true living God of the universe. Any understanding of who God is is a supernatural gift of God to the person seeking him through faith and through love. Because our God is completely other. There is no one like God. We celebrate our God because he is incomparable. And secondly, we celebrate our God because he is loving. 
Our God is a loving God. Continue on in Solomon's prayer. In the end of verse 14, he says, There is no God like you in heaven or on earth, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. And certainly Solomon had experienced that love from God and he had seen that love manifested in the life of his father David and he had heard story after story about God's steadfast love to an unfaithful people. God is loving. And he's not just loving like a grandma is loving. Like Grandmas are super loving people and I love grandmas. I love my grandmas. They were loving. They made me cookies and they encouraged me. But love is not something that, that, that God just does. Love is essential to who God is. And from God's other attributes, we can learn about God's love. And for instance, we know since God is eternal, God's love will never end. And because God's love is infinite, it has no beginning. It's because God is so immense, his love is vast. It, it can't be comprehended. It's why Paul, when he's trying to explain the love of God to the people of Ephesus in his letter, he writes and he says, I pray for you. I pray that you would have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. The love that God has for you surpasses knowledge. It's unlike any love you've ex ever experienced before and we celebrate God because he is loving. We also celebrate God because he keeps his promises. That's the third thing that we see in Solomon's prayer. We celebrate God because he keeps his promises. Solomon prays in verse 15. He says, You, you who have kept with your servant David my father what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand you have fulfilled it this day. And in verse 16 and verse 17, he goes on to, to reiterate and reaffirm this idea that we celebrate this God because my God is a promise keeping God. Aren't you glad, aren't you grateful that your God keeps his promises to you? I am so grateful that my God keeps his promises to me. I don't deserve it. None of us deserve it. We go back on our word all the time. We break our promises all the time, but our God, he never does. You read his word, every promise that you see in there, it is guaranteed. And it's guaranteed because our God, he never changes. Our God, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You see, in order to change, there needs to be some part of you that changes in relation to the other parts of you. It needs to get better. It needs to get worse. It needs to mature. But our God, he is one. He is perfect. He never changes. And where that's really good for us is because since our God is one, since he is perfect, since he never changes, his word is reliable. And we can stand on his word. We can trust him perfectly because he never changes. And we can celebrate our God because he keeps every single one of his promises. That is our God. That is the God we celebrate. And one last thing we see here in Solomon's prayer, we celebrate God because he is infinite. We celebrate God because he is infinite. In verse 18, Solomon says this. This is my favorite part about this section of the prayer. He says, but will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. And so remember, Solomon is praying this prayer in the midst of his people when God's manifest presence has shown up in a way that Israel hasn't seen in a very long time. 
But Solomon had enough wisdom to know that while God had shown up, God was not contained. While God had manifested his presence, this was not all, all of who God was. That no house, no place, no person, no thing can ever contain who God is because he is infinite. He is vast. He is immense. God, he defies space. He defies matter. Our God, he defies time. You can get all the greatest writers in the world to write the most poetic, eloquent things about our God for all of eternity, and they will have barely begun to scratch the surface of how amazing our God is. Our God is limitless. You cannot measure our God. You can measure the works of our God's hands, but you cannot measure who our God is. I think the biggest thing we could possibly comprehend is outer space, and now, because of the technology that we have, we can observe from end to end the universe, they say, is 46 billion light years big. You know how, how, how long a light year is? It's, it's, it's like 2.5.9 trillion miles. That's so vast. Uh, my mind can't even comprehend how large that is. Do you know that our God holds the universe in his hand? That however vast the universe is, it is a speck of dust compared to the infinite nature of God. And where this is really awesome for us is that because God is infinite, everything about God is also infinite. And so his love for you is without limit. His grace is without limit. His power is without limit. His, his, his wisdom, his knowledge, they are without limit. Our God is infinite. We celebrate God because he is infinite. These are just a few reasons why our God is worth celebrating. There's no one like him. His love is incomprehensible. He always keeps his promises. He is infinite, but we have barely scratched the surface. And so my question for you right now is, is when you walked into this room today and the band started playing songs, is this the God that you were worshiping? Is this the God that came to your mind when we started singing of him this morning? Listen, for me, oftentimes, it is not. It just isn't. And I don't think there's a single person in this room who isn't guilty of thinking small thoughts of God. I think every day we should be on our faces, crying out to the Lord, Lord, forgive me. Forgive me for, for my small, pathetic thoughts of who you are. But Lord, would you open my eyes, would you open the eyes of my heart so that I would see you more clearly? Would you help me to understand just a little bit more of your awesomeness, of your love, of your greatness, of your infinite nature? God, I know I am finite. I know I am fallen. I know I am a sinner. But Lord, would you just help me to see a little bit more clearly who you are? Listen, God wants to answer that prayer. God wants to respond to that prayer. He wants to show you who he is. And, and trust me, he will. And when he does, when he begins to pull off the scales off your eyes and you begin to see him for who he truly is, your heart won't be able to stop but celebrate him and celebrate who he is and all his awesomeness. And at that moment, you will begin to create and cultivate a place where God makes himself at home in your life in this church. That's what we must be praying for. We must be praying that God's home, that this church, that our hearts that our lives would be a place where God is celebrated. Would this be a place where God is truly celebrated? Let's keep reading. Let's uh, look at verse 19 right now. 
Verse 19, Solomon, uh, he keeps praying and he says this. He says, Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you, that your eyes may be open day and night toward this house, the place where you have promised to set your name, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place. And here's the second thing we must pray for. We must pray that God's home would be a place where God's attention is fixed. We must pray that God's home would be a place where God's attention is fixed. So many times at this point in his prayer in these two verses, Solomon is appealing to God, would your attention be on this home, on this place, on this people? He says, have regard to the prayer of your servant. And he says, listen to the cry. And then a few words later, that your eyes may be open day and night toward this house. And then finally, he says again, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers. And the reason why Solomon is praying this right now, that God's attention would be fixed on this place, that God's attention would be captivated by this people, is because he knew that with God's attention came God's blessing. And this is what we want for our church. We want God's attention to be fixed on this place because we want his blessing. And I believe we have that here. And I believe God is moving in power and in glory and in awesomeness. And people are choosing to believe in their hearts and confess with their mouths that Jesus is Lord. They are moving from death to life. People are making decisions, small decisions of obedience to pursue after God, to reflect his glory to other people, to share his awesomeness, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ with their friends, their family members, their coworkers. I, I, I think God's moving in power. I think we still want that. I, I don't want to lose that. Do you want to lose that here? I don't want to lose that here. I want this to be a place where God's attention is fixed. And so how do we grab God's attention? Is it loud, passionate worship, the music? I think, that's, I think God loves that, but I don't think that's what captures God's attention most. And is it, is it preaching that's faithful to God's word? That I think that honors God, but I don't think that's what grabs God's attention most, and I certainly don't think it's pretty lights or good programs or big events. I think what, what, what captures God's attention most, more than anything else, is, is prayer. It's prayer. It's why, it's why Solomon, in, in the middle of everything that was going on, he didn't choose to sing some sort of song. He didn't choose to give some speech. He got on his knees in front of the people. He humbled himself before his God, and he prayed. Prayer is what captures God's attention. Well, when God's people humble themselves before him. It's why prayer, it, it, it doesn't just create the place where God makes himself at home. It's the thing that needs to keep happening in order to cultivate a place where God makes himself at home. And so what kind of prayer is God looking for? What kind of prayer grabs God's attention? I'm thankful for God's word because I, I think it clearly shows us what that looks like. What kind of prayer grabs God's attention? First of all, it, it needs to be prayed in Jesus' name. Prayer that grabs God's attention needs to be prayed in Jesus' name. John 14, 13, Jesus said this to us. He said, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And prayer that grabs God's attention must be prayed in Jesus' name. And what that doesn't mean is it doesn't mean that, like, I can pray for whatever I want, and then I just have, like, these magic words at the end of my prayer, and I say, in Jesus' name, amen, and he has to deliver, and it sort of binds God to, to, to hear my prayer and to answer my prayer, that there's something special about that little incantation in Jesus' name. That's not what that means. What it does mean is that when we pray in Jesus' name, we pray 
prayers according to the character and to the will of who Jesus is. It means that when we pray in Jesus' name, when we appeal to God the Father, we are not appealing out of our own works, out of our own authority, because we are anything special, because we are not. We appeal to God because of Jesus and the authority of Jesus' name and his righteousness and what he's accomplished for us. Prayer that captures God's attention is prayed in Jesus' name. It's also prayed in faith. Prayer that captures God's attention is prayed in faith. James 1.6 says, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. And here at Harvest, a common definition that we use for, for faith is this. It's believing the word of God and acting upon it, no matter how I feel, knowing that God promises a good result. And in faith is a settled and secure trust in the character of God and in the promises of God as they are revealed in Scripture. And if you want to stoke the fires of your faith in Jesus Christ and pray in faith, pray and ask God for faith, but also search his word out. We, we, we know God best through his revealed word and we are able to stoke the fires of our faith in God as we know him and see him more clearly as he is revealed in his word. Prayer that captures God's attention is prayed in Jesus' name. It's prayed in faith. It's prayed in obedience. 1 Peter 3.12 says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Prayer that grabs God's attention is prayed from the heart, from the lips of the individual who, who is seeking to glorify God with their life. Someone who's seeking to have more of an impact than just on the here and now, but, but wants to see God's kingdom come and his will be done. It doesn't mean that you need to be sinless. It doesn't mean that you need to be perfect, but, but God, his ear is inclined to the individual who is seeking to glorify the Lord. He is opposed to the wicked, but his ear, he is leaning in to the righteous. Prayer that captures God's attention is surrounded in a life of obedience. And one more thing, prayer that, that captivates the attention of God is prayed in submission to wisdom. It's prayed in submission to wisdom. Luke twenty two forty two, 42. Jesus, when he was praying, he prayed this. He said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Prayer that grabs God's attention is, is not arrogant. It is not bold and insisting its own way. It's, it prays in submission to God's perfect divine wisdom. It, it's praying knowing that, that God's ways are, are higher than my ways and, and God's ways are never thwarted and, and I may not like what's happening and I may not agree with what's happening, but God, because I know who you are, I trust what you're doing and I trust that you are trying to accomplish good in my life and that you will be glorified and as I pray and as I beckon and plead, Lord, I submit myself to your wisdom. Prayer that grabs God's attention is prayed in submission to his perfect divine wisdom. You see, listen, we don't want to be um, like what Jesus called the Pharisees who would pray on the corners and pray these loud, boisterous, long, eloquent prayers that were, that were devoid of any power, that, that were aimed toward godless ends. We want to be people. Prayer that, that, that gap captures God's attention uh, comes from a heart that, that has died to itself, that... that, that that has is, that is chosen to, to carry its cross, that is humbling itself before the Lord and crying out in Jesus' name, in faith, in a, in a life of obedience, in submission to God's wisdom. That's what captures God's attention. And if we, 
If we want God's attention fixed on this place, if you want God's attention fixed on your life, when we pray prayers like that, we must pray that that, that this place, that, that our church, that our lives, that our hearts would be a place where God's attention is fixed. And the third, the final thing that we must pray for, that we see here in Solomon's prayer, we must pray that God's home would be a place where God's forgiveness is on display. We must pray that God's home would be a place where God's forgiveness is on display. Let's keep reading. If we jump down to verse 24 right now in Solomon's prayer, he continues on and he he prays this. He says, If your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you, And they turn again and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house. Then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them again to the land that you gave to them and to their fathers. And so here in this moment, what Solomon's doing is he's creating this kind of hypothetical situation, something that was very real and could very likely happen to the people of Israel. And he's saying, God, if, if, if your people go out and they fight and they lose a battle, not because the enemy was bigger or stronger or smarter, but they lose the battle because they have sinned against you. Lord, if that happens, when they turn from their sin, God, would you hear their cry and would you, Lord, forgive them? Would this place, would this people be a place where God's forgiveness is on display? You see, for Solomon... And his, this nation that he was leading at the time, it wasn't a matter of if Israel was going to sin. It was a matter of when. When they were going to sin. And not even just when, but how much. Because Solomon then goes on to pray through a, a handful more of hypothetical situations where the people of Israel sin against God and create some sort of calamity, some sort of circumstance in their nation. In verses uh, 26 and 27, Solomon says, if there's no rain because of our sin, then God, when we repent, hear our cry and forgive us. And in verses 28 through 31, Solomon says, if there's no food in our land and, and, and then the fields are plagued with locusts because of our sin, then when we turn from our sin, God, would you hear our cry and would you forgive us? And then Solomon, he goes on in verse 36, and finally he says this. He says, if they sin against you, they will because of this. For there is no one who does not sin. There's no one who does not sin. Solomon knows at this point in his prayer, he says, God, in the heart of every man, in the heart of every woman, in the heart of every child, there is sin. And when we stray from your ways, when we turn from you, when we choose foolishness over what you have set before us, God, when we turn from that and we cry out, Lord, would you hear our prayers and would you forgive us? And the reason why Solomon is praying this right now is because Solomon is experiencing something the people of Israel hadn't experienced in a very, very long time. And he knew, he knew that this God that had manifested his presence amongst the people of Israel, he is a holy God. And this holy God could not be in the presence of sin. God, Solomon did not want to lose this. He was jealous for this to be a thing that stayed in Israel. Solomon knew that God would not make himself at home amongst the stubborn-hearted people that refused to repent of their sin. He knew that. He knew that if, if, if Israel had sinned and they would remain stubborn in their ways, that God would leave. 
They would lose his blessing. His attention would no longer be fixed on their people, their lives, this temple. Solomon wanted God's house to be a place where God's forgiveness was on display. Remember, we are God's temple now. You and me, we are God's temple. And so our lives, this church, must be a place where there is no hiding, but God's forgiveness is on display. This must be a place where Someone said it, I can't remember who, but they said that the church is not a a museum for the saints and well-behaved people, but this is a hospital for sick people and sinners. That this would be a place where we are open with our sin. We we talked about this last week, and I think it manifests itself in two different ways, God's forgiveness on display in our context. I think, first of all, we see God's forgiveness on display vertically. We see it vertically, from God to us, from God to his people, we see God's forgiveness on display. And God's forgiveness is on display when we confess our sins. When we confess our sins. 1 John 1, 9, it says this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is a promise of God rooted in the character of God that never changes. And it's a promise that every follower of Jesus Christ should be taking God up on every single day. Repentance is not this sad activity that we do once in a while when we really mess up. Repentance leads to joy. And repentance is something that we should be doing every single day. God, forgive me. I am sorry for straying from your ways. Lord, would you restore to me the joy of my salvation? God is eager to do that for you. We need that every day because we are all sinners. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed from when Solomon prayed in verse 36 when he said, for there is no one who does not sin. The the verse right before the one I read, 1 John 1, 9 and verse 8, John says, he says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Listen, if we want this to be a place where God makes himself at home, this needs to be a place where God's forgiveness is on display. Vertically, from God to us, and it doesn't just stop there, we also want to see God's forgiveness on display horizontally. From one person to another person. That's where we need to see God's forgiveness on display. God's forgiveness is on display when we humble ourselves and we ask for forgiveness. God's forgiveness is on display when we choose grace over bitterness. We choose to release the offense that the person committed against us. A definition for forgiveness is this. It is the decision to release a person from the obligation that resulted when they injured you. That is what forgiveness is. The decision to release a person from the obligation that resulted when they injured you. And listen, I can see it in some of your faces right now that that's a a hard thing. There have been people who have hurt you really, really bad. And in your mind, they don't deserve this forgiveness. They don't deserve to be released from this thing. They must pay. Justice must be served. But we must forgive. How do we forgive? What we see in verses 41 and 42, look there now. This is how Solomon wraps up his prayer. He says this. He says, and now arise, O Lord God, and go to your resting place. He says, you and the ark of your might. He says, let your priests, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation. And let your saints rejoice in your goodness. 
O Lord God, do not turn away the face of Your anointed one. Remember Your steadfast love for David, Your servant. And that's how he ends the prayer. And I'm sure you're wondering right now, what in the world does that have to do with forgiveness? How, how does that help me to forgive other people? Well, as you're looking in your Bibles, I'm sure you can tell that, that those last two verses, they're a little bit different than the rest of Solomon's prayer. And that's not because they were special in any sense other than the fact that at this point, Solomon's probably quoting from a song that they sang back then. It's a song that we now have recorded as Psalm 132. And that psalm, what it, what it dealt with, what it celebrated was the return of God's ark, the ark of the covenant, to its resting place. And I think for many of us, the extent of our knowledge of the Ark of the Covenant comes from an Indiana Jones movie, right? I would just go ahead and delete that, okay? <laughs> delete that image. Like, that's, that has nothing to do with this right now. The Ark of the Covenant, Solomon now ends his prayer with it. So what's the deal with this thing? What is the Ark of the Covenant? Well, the Ark of the Covenant was, was the most important object of worship for ancient Israel. And it was a box. And like everything else that God owned, it was covered in gold. And the writer of Hebrews, in, in chapter 9, verse 4, he says this, Inside the box was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And covering this box, the Ark of the Covenant, was what was called the mercy seat. And overshadowing the mercy seat were, were two angels, two cherubims. And once a year, once a year, on what was called the Day of the Atonement, that the high priest, he would enter into the Holy of Holies where this ark was held. And he would take the blood of the sacrifice. And he would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat, pardoning the sins of the people of Israel that had formed a barrier to God temporarily for a season. That's why this thing was so important to them. And I'm sure as you can tell from worshiping here at, at Harvest that we don't do that anymore. I'll just, I'll just let you know, there's not a secret room where we're killing animals and sprinkling blood on things, okay? That's not happening anymore. But here's the problem. We, we still have this barrier of sin between us and God. It's still a problem for us, but, but we don't depend upon the sacrifices of animals anymore. We lean into the once and for all perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We are saved by his blood. And the writer of Hebrews, it's so cool what the writer of Hebrews says later on. He says this, that Jesus Christ, that he entered once for all into the holy places. Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood securing once and for all an eternal redemption, not a temporary redemption, but a perfect, eternal redemption. Listen, our forgiveness that we have through Jesus Christ, for us, it's a free gift from God. But for God, it was not free. It cost God. And, and now we have Jesus Christ. He is, he is our great high priest. He is advocating on our behalf. He is our mediator. You know, in the Ark of the Covenant were those tablets that held the moral law of God. Only Jesus Christ perfectly fulfilled those commandments, the moral law of God. And he now stands for us righteously in our place. 
but he's not only our great high priest, Jesus Christ, he is also our perfect atoning sacrifice. And the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ covers every single sin of yours, from the smallest to the largest offense. And even your smallest offense against the most holy God is worse than anything anyone has ever done to you. Listen, church, we have been forgiven so much. We've been forgiven so, so much through the blood of Jesus Christ. Who are we to withhold forgiveness for another person? Listen, it's what forgiven people do. Forgiven people forgive. And if we want to see God make himself at home among us, then God's forgiveness needs to be on display in this place. And one of the most powerful ways that God's forgiveness can be on display is when we release another person from the obligation, from the offense that they have committed against us. Such a beautiful picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ when we see that happen from one believer to another. In fact, let's go to God right now in prayer. Let's pray right now. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. I think in this moment right now, let's just take a moment to just go before God and receive his forgiveness. Whether it's for views that are too small of who God is or some offense that we walked in with. Lord God, would you forgive us? We thank you for Jesus Christ, for the atoning sacrifice. Whether we no longer depend upon the sacrifice of animals, but the once and for all perfect eternal sacrifice that we have in Jesus Christ, the redemption that we have in him. Thank you for that, God, that gift that none of us deserve, but you so freely give. We lean into that, God. We press into that right now. Lord, I pray right now for for the individual who has to make the hard decision to release someone from an offense that's been committed against them. And God, I just pray that you would give them the strength, open, open their eyes to see how much they've been forgiven, Lord. And I pray that you give them the strength to, to show that grace, to show that mercy to that person who has offended them. I pray that you would give humility to the person who needs to approach someone and ask for forgiveness. God, I, I just pray that this place would be a place where your forgiveness is on display. That you would be glorified, God. You would make yourself at home among us. Lord, I pray that your attention would be fixed on this place, God, that your blessing would flow into the lives of these people, into this place as we worship you and celebrate you. God, I pray that this place would be a place where you, place where you are celebrated. Help us to see you for who you truly are, to worship you for, for who you really are and all your awesomeness and all your power, Lord, according to your love, your mercy, and your kindness toward us, God. We can't do this without you, Lord, so help us to be a people of prayer, living dependently, on you, humbling ourselves before you. Would you empower us with your spirit so that your kingdom would come here on earth as it is in heaven, God? We pray this in your son's matchless name.